This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome in, everybody, to episode 199 of the podcast that is Sweeping America, the Aratora Sports Podcast. Great show today. There is so much to get into from the weekend. Obviously, the big story in college football, Tua Tonga Viola, a season-ending injury. Uh, hopefully, we really hope that it is not a potentially career-threatening injury. I'm going to get into this. I'm going to get into why you shouldn't be blaming Nick Saban, why this is just one of those things that happens in football sometimes. There was obviously a lot of reaction to this injury. A lot of people, frankly, are misinformed. Uh, we had a doctor on my Fox Sports radio show Saturday night. He told us a lot of good information, so I'm going to share it here. We'll obviously update the playoff picture. I don't think there was a lot of moving and shaking this weekend. Everyone except for Baylor, who obviously was playing Oklahoma head-to-head, that was in the playoff picture one. I do have some questions about LSU. I have some questions about uh, Georgia, which we'll get into after the Tua talk. And then we're going to switch gears over to basketball. Great weekend in the sport of college basketball. The last time that we spoke, the James Wiseman news uh, had, had not been updated. So I'm going to tell you what happened. James Wiseman is officially, as I record here Monday morning, he is ineligible, not playing. I'm going to tell you what changed, why Memphis decided to do it, What's next for James Wiseman in Memphis? And oh, by the way, my UConn Huskies, great win on Sunday over the University of Florida. Of course, the real story is, and it pains me to say this as a UConn fan, but the real story is Florida's a complete mess right now. I told you in the preseason not to buy the hype. I'm going to get into that game, why Florida struggled, why they look so bad, and is it fixable? Is Florida just maybe not as good as we thought coming into the season? Also, shout out to the Tennessee Vols who had a great win this weekend over Quad A Green, Jaden McDaniels, Isaiah Stewart, and the Washington Huskies. Before we get into this, I want to remind everybody, please, very quickly, make sure you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Our numbers continue to go up as we hit basketball season, and we're going to be talking so much basketball over the next six months. So make sure you're subscribed, iTunes, Podcast Addict, Podbean, TuneIn Radio. Uh, I mentioned Podcast Addict. That is where if you listen on an Android, that is where you're going to want to get this show. So make sure and be uh, subscribed there. Also, make sure to rate and review the show Give us a quick five stars. Uh, Just let us know what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, what you like, what you don't. Uh, If you want to leave a review, that would be ideal as well. Make sure you're following on Instagram, Aaron underscore Torres underscore sports underscore podcast on Instagram. I should mention every Monday on Instagram, 
I'm going to release my updated College Hoops Top 25, maybe get into that at the back end of the show as well. And then finally, if you have questions for the show, we'll get to some mailbags here over the course of the next couple weeks. Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. All right, so let's get into the big story of the weekend. I just mentioned a minute ago, Tua Tonga Viola, star quarterback, Alabama, runner-up in the Heisman Trophy last year, one of the favorites to win it this year, probably right behind Joe Burrow. He goes down with a gruesome, awful hip injury on Saturday afternoon against Mississippi State. For those of you who maybe weren't in front of the TV, let's give a quick rundown, then we'll get into the ramifications of it. The quick rundown is very simply this. To to backtrack a few weeks, what we know is that three, four weeks ago, Alabama is playing at Tennessee, Tua Tonga Viola, really bad high ankle sprain, goes down, gets carted off, taken to a hospital in Tennessee, okay? Misses the Arkansas game, ends up having surgery, and he comes back against LSU last week. And I think if anyone watched that game, and millions of people did, so I'm guessing everybody that listens to this show probably did tune in, what you need to know very simply um, is that when you watch the LSU game, it was very clear that while Tua played incredibly well, Alabama scored 41 points, I think we would all agree Tua not at 100% in that LSU game. Obviously, over the course of the last week, Tua doesn't practice, he's limited at practice, and the question becomes, is Alabama going to play him against Mississippi State? Mississippi State is struggling, they're not playing very well, do you sit him, do you hope that you get through this game and you get him fully healthy for the Auburn game, for the stretch run, and then of course you hope you beat Auburn and there's chaos and you end up in the playoff as the number four seed. Instead, Tua decides he wants to play, his parents sign off on it, Nick Saban says, okay, if you're ready to go, we're going to put you out there. Alabama gets up to a 35-7 lead. It appears as though Tua is about ready to come out to the game, out of the game. Nick Saban sends him out there uh, for one final two-minute drive. Basically, Nick Saban even said this. He said, we're up, we're going to pull him. We wanted him to practice the two-minute drive before the half, and we were going to take him out at halftime, up 35-7 to at the very least, maybe 42-7 to if they score a touchdown there. Instead, Tua gets out of the pocket. He's running away. He gets sacked by two Mississippi State players, and immediately he goes down. He doesn't get up, and if you're watching the game, you just see that it is really, really, really bad. He can't put any weight on his side, any weight on his lower body. We obviously all at home thought it was an ankle injury. Um, It was, of course, not an ankle injury. It was a very scary hip injury, and of course, the, the reports immediately after made it even worse, which is that looked like Bo Jackson's hip injury that ended his career. So, first of all, the good news is, if there is such a thing as good news, um, multiple doctors, multiple surgeons uh, coming out, making statements on behalf of Alabama, saying that Tua's undergone a couple procedures. He's going through, uh, I think he's going through his official surgery, major surgery on Monday. He's expected to make a full recovery. So let's just hope very simply that he will make a full recovery, that this isn't career ending, that this doesn't affect his NFL future because he's a great kid and he's obviously a very talented kid. And I'll be honest, selfishly, I want to watch him keep playing football at the NFL level. But to backtrack, I think, I, I think the big thing is obviously as soon as that injury happened, we did like we always do as a society and immediately jump to, okay, who's to blame? And Nick Saban should have never had him out there. And Tua, why did he play? And his parents. And it's like, this is the thing that frustrated me about the conversation on Saturday. 
We can all agree this was an awful situation. I think we can all agree that we feel terrible for Tua Tonga Viola. But I don't think we need to go playing the blame game because of the fact that Tua decided to play, that Nick Saban decided to play him, and point fingers at who's responsible for this. Because here's the bottom line. I'll tell you this. Saturday night, Fox Sports Radio, one of the great things about doing that Fox Sports Radio show is I take that job very seriously, but it also kind of helps set the framework for what this show is going to be on Monday. And on the Saturday Fox Sports Radio show, which I do encourage you guys to actually listen, check out the podcast. I do it with Arnie Spanier. On that show, we had a doctor, the former uh, then San Diego Charger, now LA Charger doctor, came on the show and he talked about the injury. And so the first thing, and I think the most important thing that you guys as an audience need to know is this. The injury that happened to Tua on Saturday afternoon had nothing to do with the ankle injury. So because he hurt the ankle three weeks ago, according to this doctor, former San Diego Chargers team doctor, it did not, uh, because he had a bad ankle, it did not predispose him to this hip injury. This hip injury could have happened whether he was 100% healthy, whether he wasn't healthy, whether he had a bad ankle, whether he had a bad shoulder, whether his neck was sore. This could have happened in week one. It could have happened in the preseason. It could have happened in an exhibition season. It could have happened five years down the road in the NFL. Because the ankle was bad, had nothing to do with this hip injury. And so that's what I think is the most important thing here. So before we all play Monday morning quarterback, before we all decide that Nick Saban's a terrible human being because he was putting the team before Tua, just realize that this injury could have happened at any point. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, unless you believe that, frankly, and I wouldn't even necessarily argue or disagree with you on this, is that unless you feel like, okay, Tua was the consensus number one pick coming into the draft, he shouldn't have been playing at all this season, then you can't really say that by Tua playing on Saturday that, that, he, you know, that Tua ruined his career and Nick Saban ruined Tua's career by putting him out there Saturday. It could have happened at any time. It had nothing to do with the ankle. And so that's the first kind of most important thing but then I think the other thing that we all need to remember is that Tua himself signed off on this. And Tua himself told his coach he was ready to go. And Tua's parents told Nick Saban that he was ready to go, that he wanted to play, that he wanted to be part of this championship run, and that Nick Saban as a head coach, listen, Nick Saban got approval from his doctors. Nick Saban got approval from Tua. Nick Saban got approval from Tua's parents. And Nick Saban, listen, I'm not claiming that I know him. But what I will tell you, he was never going to put Tua out there if he was a risk to himself, if he was a risk to further injury. That's just not how this stuff works at this level. Where I disagree with the people that are questioning Nick Saban, though, is this. Is once the doctors give Tua approval, once Tua says, I'm good to go, you can't criticize Nick Saban for having him out there in a 35-7 to game. And that was the part that, bo that bothered me. People weren't mad that Nick Saban decided to play Tua. They were mad that, well, why is he even in a 35-7 to game? And, like, I look at it from the perspective of once you as a player decide that you're ready to play, you got to play until the coach feels like the game is completely out of hand. And I know what people are going to say, well, it was a two-minute drill and they were up 35-7. to So I guess where my question comes in is, so because they were up 35-7, to seven, that's the magic line. That's the, the delineator. That's where Nick Saban is supposed to pull Tua at, with a 28-point lead in the first half. So are you telling me that if the score was 17-7 to seven or 14-7 to seven or 7 nothing, that Nick Saban shouldn't have pulled Tua, that you'd be okay with this injury? 
that you'd be fine with this injury if it was a competitive game, but because it was a blowout, Nick Saban put two at harm? No. Nick Saban did what he thought was best for the football team once Tua gave him the approval to play. He did what he thought was best for the football team. I actually thought there was a very interesting comment by Barrett Jones, who is a former player, three-time national champion. He was part of Nick Saban's, I believe, his first full recruiting class at Alabama, so the A.J. McCarron years. I saw him tweet something which I thought was very interesting, and what he said was this. He said, Nick Saban only pulls players if the game is out of hand, and he only pulls players to get their backups, reps, and experience. And so the process, which is kind of Nick Sa- the broad term that Nick Saban uses to kind of describe um, how teams evolve over the course of the season and become championship contenders and all that stuff, the, you can't criticize the process because he decided to keep Tua out for an extra series, but then love the process 364 days a year besides that when it's winning huge national championships. And so to me, I thought that was really good insight, and I just didn't like people saying, well, it was 35-7, to 7, you should have taken him out. Why is 35 to 7 this magic line in the sand where it's somehow okay to take him out? Because I'll tell you this, again, if it was 17-7, does that mean that it was okay for him to be out there? By the way, I mentioned this on Twitter the other day. Joe Burrow, LSU. LSU was up 20 points at halftime against Alabama. So you're telling me that if Joe Burrow was coming off an injury and wasn't 100% that Ed Orgeron should have pulled him because it was a 20-point halftime lead? Of course not. It's ridiculous. Now, where I will, I don't want to say side with people, but the argument that I will hear, I think people were asking the wrong question on Saturday as it pertains to this injury. They were asking, why was Tua out there when they were up 35-7? to I personally believe that when Nick Saban felt like he was ready, he had seen enough, it was fine to pull Tua. I don't blame Nick Saban because when a, a player gives you the sign-off, you got to be ready to go. And Nick Saban even said um, after the game, like, look, we don't go into a game anticipating a player is going to get injured. If he's healthy, if he says he wants to play, if the doctors give approval, we're going to play him. Where I do think you can criticize Nick Saban, or at the very least question it, is does should Tua have played at all? I think people were asking the wrong question on Saturday afternoon. The question was, why was he in at 35-7? to 7? I think the question really was, the appropriate question was, should he have been playing at all? He was less than 100%. Now, again, the injury does not predispose him, the ankle injury did not predispose him to this hip injury, but... I do think that that if you're even if you're looking at the big picture of the season, if you're if you if you just take Tua out of it and you're looking at the big picture of the season, I thought my buddy Mark Ryan, he's a radio host in Clemson, South Carolina. I thought he brought up a great point on Twitter. He t- he said point blank. He said, "Look, the reason it was wrong is not because Tua had a hip injury. The reason that it was wrong is because of of this very simple reason." Nick Saban and Alabama know that they cannot win the national championship without Tua. And so by playing him in a game where you're probably going to win, you're potentially setting yourself up for something like this where no one could have seen the hip injury coming, but you could set up a situation where the ankle injury gets worse and you don't have Tua for Auburn in two weeks. So I guess what I would say is if I'm going to side on Nick Saban did something wrong, I don't think it was having him in at 35-7, to I do think you can question, like, should Nick Saban have just kind of drawn the line in the sand and said, like, Tua, you're not playing this week. 
we need you healthy for Auburn. We think we can get by Mississippi State. But even then, it's hard to tell a player who is telling you, coach, I am ready to go. I am ready to play. One, it's hard to tell him no. And two, this is still an SEC game. It is still an SEC road game. And there is always the chance that Mississippi State could give you trouble. I mean, Mississippi State scored 30 points a couple weeks ago against Texas A&M. They scored 50-plus against Arkansas, which doesn't really count because Arkansas is an FBS team, but FCS team. But you get the point. They've been playing well. They were coming off a bye. And I, I, I think you can make the argument that Nick Saban should have played them at all. But imagine, God forbid, Alabama loses that game without Tua, Tua on the sidelines, Tua in street clothes. Then you're really second-guessing it because Tua gave you the okay and because the doctors gave you the okay. So I think the bottom line is we spent so much time arguing and fighting and, and picking on Nick Saban. And, and listen, Nick Saban gets paid a lot of money to deal with this responsibility. I get it. So I'm not saying like, you know, like like throw a pity party for Nick Saban. But what I am saying is I think it's wrong to question him for either playing Tua or keeping Tua in the game. Tua is an adult. Tua is 21 years old. Tua could have told him, I don't feel ready to go. Tua's parents could have stepped in, but the doctor said he was okay. Tua said he was okay. His parents said he was okay. And again, remember, the ankle injury did not directly, uh, did not cause the hip injury. Because he had the ankle injury, it does not impact why the this hip injury happened. And so that's kind of just the big picture on the, on the Nick Saban, Tua stuff. And I would just really quickly wrap by saying this is I think I I don't think I'm like saying anything even a little bit on controversial is not even the right word, but I, I, I think I just want to wrap by saying on Tua, I just hope he's okay, man. Because selfishly, and this is selfish, I love watching the kid play football. And and his best football is ahead. Statistically, he is one of, I'm not kidding when I say this, one of the greatest college quarterbacks in the history of the sport. He's one of the players that I've most enjoyed watching in my life. Uh, you could go back to Reggie Bush. You could go back to Sean Taylor, a defensive back for Miami who was incredible. If you're too young to remember Sean Taylor, go find some highlights on YouTube. He was unbelievable. But Tua was right up there with among my favorite players to ever watch in college football. Selfishly, I hope he's okay because he's got a lot of money left to be made on the football field. And I hope that he's fine. I hope that we see him in the NFL. I hope this hip injury isn't life-altering. I hope it's not career-threatening um, because he's an incredible football player. And I really hope he is okay. All right, let's transition to the rest of the college football playoff picture and and I don't think there's really a ton to talk about because everybody it was kind of one of those weekends where everybody held serve right so you look at the, the top of the playoff standings LSU Ohio State Clemson one two three all three win convincingly although I am a little concerned with LSU which we'll talk about in a minute but then you go through the rest of the rankings number four Georgia beats Auburn although it wasn't necessarily the most pretty game to watch. They did still win that game. Alabama at number five wins. Uh, Oregon and Utah number six and seven win. Oklahoma wins. Obviously, Minnesota sort of plays themselves out of the playoff picture, but not really. I mean, because listen, Minnesota is one of two teams along with Baylor that lost, but I would tell you this with Minnesota. Minnesota, as weird as it sounds, because we are talking about Minnesota football, the Golden Gophers, the Minnesota Miracle Man, P.J. Fleck, the Minnesota Golden Gophers still control their own destiny in the college football playoff picture. If they win their next two games, they will make the Big Ten championship game, 
And if they make the Big Ten championship game and beat the Big Ten East winner, which will probably be Ohio State, Minnesota is going to the playoffs. So even though they lost, it didn't really change that much for them in the bigger picture of the season. They play at Northwestern this week. They close with Wisconsin. If they win those two games, they're going to the Big Ten championship game. And if they were to beat Ohio State or Penn State, they are going to the playoffs. So the playoff picture didn't really change. So I'll just get into a couple of the games really quick. Then I do want to get to the basketball stuff because the James Wiseman stuff is updated and interesting. Um, And also... Who else? Oh, the Florida thing was fascinating from this weekend, so I do want to get into that as well. I think the big story itself from college football outside of Tua Tonga-Viola, obviously, look, it's the Oklahoma Sooners, right? So Oklahoma is going to Baylor. Baylor is undefeated. Oklahoma knows if they lose this game, they are out of the playoff picture. What happens? They fall down 28-3, to and yes, go ahead and insert your own Atlanta Falcons 28-3 to jokes here. You don't need me to do it for you. They fall down 28-3, to they fall down 31-10 to 10 at halftime, and they rallied to win the game. It was just an incredible thing to watch. Oklahoma could do no right early on in the game. I think Jalen Hurts even said, like, I'm happy we won, but I shouldn't have put us in this position to lose. Jalen Hurts had three turnovers, including a fumble literally on the goal line. He was running in, and at the one-yard line, it gets punched out. It becomes a touchback. Baylor gets the ball back. So not even a great game from Jalen Hurts, but I will give Oklahoma credit for this. Championship kind of medal, championship toughness, championship, whatever you want to call it. They fall down 28 to 3 at halftime, 31 to 10 at at, at the half or 30 28 to 3 and then 31 to 10 at halftime. They rally, they score 24 points unanswered in the second half and they shut out Baylor in the second half. And I think that's the key that you need to take out of this game. I told you last week, I said, I really think Oklahoma, listen, I know we're so critical of that defense. I get it. I myself have been critical, but they played so well for six or seven weeks to open the year that I just didn't believe that this was a team that was going to completely fall apart and completely stop playing defense. But they did struggle against Kansas State and they did struggle against Iowa State. But even if you watch the Iowa State game, you saw that they played pretty well for three quarters. They fell apart late, a lot of mistakes late but they were able to do enough to win that game. They do enough to beat Baylor. And now Oklahoma's right back in the thick of things. I mean, listen, Oklahoma's still probably going to need some help. I do think the biggest key for them is Georgia, which we're going to get into in a minute. Um, But I do want to give them a little bit of credit because this was a losable game, top 10 team on the road. You shut them out in the second half. You score 24 in answer in the second half. You come back to win. Great effort by Oklahoma. I do want to talk about Georgia, and I want to talk about Georgia in the context of also um, LSU because Georgia clinched a spot in the SEC championship game third straight year. They will play LSU, assuming LSU wins, I guess, one of their final two games. I'm not even – I think LSU, in theory, has maybe already clinched the SEC West title. Um, No, LSU has to beat Arkansas this weekend. Really good good luck to to LSU, man. That's not going to be an easy one. Arkansas at all. No, I'm kidding. Arkansas is terrible. So when LSU wins this weekend, they they will end up in the SEC championship game against Georgia. Really quick on Georgia. Georgia's kind of, and I said this last episode, they're kind of the linchpin to this whole college football playoff conversation. I truly believe that because if you look at Georgia, they're sitting at number four right now. If they beat LSU, I think the top three teams, if LSU gets through this season undefeated, the top three teams, LSU, Ohio State, and Oklahoma, and Clemson, 
they are going to get into the playoff. Or, in theory, if Ohio State loses and Penn State, like whatever it is, like if there's a one-loss Big Ten team, and if there is an undefeated LSU going into the SEC championship game, Clemson is not going to lose a game. They only play South Carolina before the ACC championship game. Like those three teams feel pretty good. Whoever the Big Ten champ is, LSU and Clemson. And so the fourth team, the linchpin to this whole thing is Georgia. The Enron of college football. They're, I get so frustrated with them because they can't score and they're not good on offense and they're overrated and Kirby Smart tried to claim after a tough loss in the SEC championship game last year that they deserve to be in the playoff and they got smoked in the, the Sugar Bowl. But I bring up Georgia for this very simple reason. If they win the SEC championship game, if they beat LSU, they are going to the college football playoff. And I think LSU will also go to the college football playoff just based on the totality of really good wins they have because you got to remember... LSU won at Alabama. They beat Florida. With Florida's now, by the way, 8-2. They're looking at a potential 10-2 season. Um, they beat Auburn. They, they won at Texas. And so I think the totality of LSU's wins is going to get them in the playoff, even if they lose the SEC championship game. And if Georgia wins the SEC championship game, they're going to get that fourth spot. So if Georgia loses, that's when you open up the floodgates for everybody else. I don't think Alabama is a legitimate contender. I know people keep using the Cardale Jones example. I get it. I understand why you're doing it. Cardale Jones, of course, was the third-string quarterback at Ohio State. When Ohio State went on to the college football playoff in the first year of the playoff, and Ohio State went on to win the national championship... But if you kind of look at the bigger picture of that season, Ohio State was peaking. They won in the Big Ten title game. I don't buy that Alabama with a backup quarterback is going to look so good not playing in the SEC championship game that they will do enough to get into the playoff unless there's mass chaos. Unless both Pac-12 teams lose, unless we don't get a Big 12 champion with one loss, I just can't see Alabama getting in without Tua. So Georgia is the linchpin. I don't believe in Alabama. And I'll tell you this, right now, I feel like personally behind Georgia, the winner of the Pac-12 has the edge. Because the winner of the Pac-12, assuming both teams get to the Pac-12 championship game at 12-1, and Oregon and Utah, that's going to be a really good win to cap the season. And I do think that we could be talking about Utah or Oregon. By the way, hate to brag, had Utah in the playoff in the preseason. Go back to the Instagram page. It's up there. Um, I do believe that Utah very much or Oregon could be in that playoff mix if they both went out. And I'll tell you, don't sleep on Utah, by the way. Utah's that team, right? We do this in the NCAA tournament. We do it in the NFL playoffs where we say, who, like, who's the team that nobody should want to play? Like, right? Like, who's that sixth seed in the tournament? That's like, damn, they, you know, they struggled in like November and December and January, but like they're really good right now in March. Like we, we do that in the NCAA tournament every time. And I think Utah is that team in college football right now. Their defense is unreal. They held UCLA to three points this weekend. And now their offense is starting to play catch up. And so their offense is right there. And I think they're a team that could give one of these real powers trouble. Can they beat LSU? I don't think so. Can they beat Ohio State? I don't think so. But can they at the very least compete with them? I think, think so. All right, last thought from the college football week, and then we're going to get into some basketball stuff, is LSU. LSU wins 58-37 to against Ole Miss, and here's the hiccup. LSU gave up 614 yards of total offense, 400 yards on the ground, 9 yards per rush. And I'm sitting here saying, listen, I love the LSU story. I love Ed Orgeron. But with the way that they are playing defense, 
And it isn't just this week, by the way. They've given up 35 or more four times this year, 40-plus to, to Texas, 40-plus to Alabama. Like, is this LSU defense going to be good enough to stop people in the playoff when it matters? Like, we, we've spent so much time, like, gushing and loving uh, Ed Orgeron and how great he's been. But this defense, I don't know that this defense can stop Clemson or Ohio State right now enough to win a national championship. And so to me, this is one of the bigger subplots going into the back end of this season, the last two weeks of the regular season SEC championship game playoff, is like, we sure that LSU is like, like that, that they're okay, like that they can handle what they are going to what's going to come their way in the playoff because I'm not sure now I do think they get by Georgia I didn't mention much about Georgia's win over Auburn but Georgia is who they are at this point they are old school they're basically what LSU was seven or eight years ago they run the ball they play defense they want to win every game like they did on Saturday 21 to 14 and it almost cost them because they weren't able to score late they scored their 21st point their third touchdown in the game late in the third quarter Auburn rallies Auburn has two different chances to get to get into uh, a potential uh, you know spot to tie up the game, and they didn't get take advantage of either. But Georgia's offense is so limited that I do worry about it, and I do, I, I think LSU gets by them, but I do worry about LSU in the big picture. Is this team ready to compete with the big boys in college football on that college football playoff stage? All right, I do want to get to some basketball to wrap up this show. It's that time of year. College football is overlapping with college basketball. I'm trying to give both love. And it's especially true on this Monday because so much stuff in college basketball happened since we last recorded. And it was really unfortunate because last episode, it went out basically just a couple hours before there was an update on James Wiseman. And where we last left it was that James Wiseman and Memphis were basically doing the exact opposite of everything every school has ever done in NCAA history when there has been an issue with the NCAA. To backtrack for people who don't remember, as a general rule, this is how the process normally works. The NCAA thinks there is something wrong with a player's eligibility. The NCAA then alerts the school and the school elects to pull the player out of games, okay? So again, I mentioned this last week, but the, but the NCAA doesn't actually suspend people. The NCAA just tells the school, and it's up to the school to suspend people. And basically, throughout history, every time that the NCAA has told the school, hey, like this player might not, like there might be something here that you might want to look into, the school decides that they don't want to mess with the NCAA. They don't want the, to use Penny Hardaway's term, they don't want the smoke that the NCAA is going to bring and so they just kind of choose to like, okay, we'll pull the guy, we'll figure out the details, we'll work with you, we'll get the situation solved. That's actually exactly what happened with Ohio State and Chase Young over the course of the last couple of weeks. Ohio State is alerted that there might be an issue with James Watt, or with uh, Chase Young, and they decide, you know what, let's pull him out, let's get all the facts together, let's work with the NCA. And I thought the NCA was actually very reasonable. Two-game suspension for, for Chase Young, pays back whatever monetary amount, and he is playing this weekend against Penn State. Memphis, of course, decided to do the exact opposite. They basically said, like, yeah, we like rules were broken. This was the crazy part about the Memphis deal, too, is that rules were broken, the, and Memphis didn't even dispute the facts. Memphis said, like, yeah, Penny Hardaway gave the Wiseman family this amount of money. Penny Hardaway is a booster. So, yeah, we kind of get that James Wiseman um, is ineligible because he took money from a booster, but, yeah, we're just going to play him anyway. And so that's what Memphis did for the first three games of the season, and over the last couple days, really since this last episode, they came to their senses. And the best way, people keep asking me, well, what changed? What's different? What's this? The best way I can describe it 
is this. I had a, a good source in basketball kind of explain this to me. Is that Memphis realized that while they could win this battle, they couldn't win the war. And it's an old saying, but it's very applicable here. You can win the battle, but you can't win the war. You can win this game, but in the long term of the season, it's not going to work out well. And so what I mean by win the battle, not the war, is very simply this. Memphis could have continued to fight this in the courts, in the legal system. They could have continued to play James Wiseman. The NCAA isn't going to show up at Memphis and uh, handcuff James Wiseman um, you know, to the bench and, and make sure that he doesn't play. There's nothing the NCAA can do if a team decides to continue to do it. And Memphis could have tried to continue to wage this battle, keep the injunction going, continue to play him, and then whatever happens, happens, right? James Wiseman does well. James Wiseman doesn't do well. Memphis goes to the Sweet 16. They go to the Final Four. Whatever. But you're not going to win the war. And if you don't win the war, this is what's going to happen. If you keep playing James Wiseman, it might work out for the next week. It might work out for the next month. It might work out for the next six months. But eventually, the NCAA is going to come down and say, like, look, we couldn't stop you from playing James Wiseman, but we sure as heck can hammer the crap out of you right now. We sure as heck can make sure that you're banned from future postseason tournaments. We can for sure make sure that you get scholarship reductions, that Penny Hardaway deals with a suspension, a show cause, who knows for how long. So you can fight this battle. You can keep going to court. But you're not going to win in the bigger picture because we are going to eventually get you. And so I don't know exactly who it was behind the scenes with Memphis where cooler heads did prevail. Um, It could have been Penny Hardaway. Penny Hardaway could have just realized that this was a no-win situation for him. I think realistically, it may have been the school president or the school AD that kind of stepped in and said, like, look, you guys proved your point. You're not going to back down. We get it. It's cool. But, like, we have a job to do here, too. And Penny Hardaway, like the rest of us, he has a boss that he does answer to. And Penny Hardaway's the man. Penny Hardaway made $120 million in his career. But Penny Hardaway still has a boss to answer to. And whether it's the athletic director or whether it's the school president, I do believe that somebody probably stepped in because, as I just said, Penny Hardaway can fight because he doesn't need Memphis basketball. Penny Hardaway made $120 million in his career, and he never has to work another. He could go sit on a beach in the Bahamas and drink Mai Tais every day for the rest of his life, and that sounds awesome, but he doesn't have to work if he doesn't want to. But the Memphis AD, that guy needs this job, and the Memphis uh, president, that guy needs this job. And the quickest way to make sure that you lose that job is to fight a battle with the NCAA that you're not going to eventually win. And so I know it was fun on Twitter and all these media guys, oh, you know, look at the NCAA, like Memphis is fighting the NCAA. Like you're not going to win. And so Memphis decided to back down. I also think kind of privately, I'm guessing that that James Wiseman probably realized that it was in his best interest as well. And listen, you know, you guys know me. I'm not like anti-player, anti-anything. Um, and I want to watch James Wiseman play basketball, but I also think that he kind of realized like, look, as long as I continue to keep playing, this is all anybody is going to ask about. As long as I continue to keep playing every pregame, every postgame, my coaches are going to have to answer this. I'm going to have to answer this. My teammates are going to have to answer this. I'm sure that there are probably media members in Memphis right now following James Wiseman's mom around seeking comment, his lawyers. And so when I think about James Wiseman, I've interviewed him a few times. He's, he's a quiet kid. He's a humble kid. Um, you know, he's not, um, 
you know, I can't, he's not Draymond Green, right? Like, like, he just wants to play basketball. He wants to be at Memphis. He wants to go pro in six months. He doesn't want to be the face of this massive court case in the face of the biggest story in college basketball over the next six months. He just wants to play basketball and go pro. And so I wasn't surprised that eventually, whether it was Memphis, whether it was Penny Hardaway, whether it was the school president, whether it was James Wiseman, whoever it was, just kind of said, okay, enough is enough. And so now James Wiseman is by technicality ineligible, uh, by technicality Memphis will probably have to vacate the first two wins from their season, which we'll get into in a minute. And I do think the question is like very fair, what is next? And as I'm recording on Monday, there has been no resolution. Um, so I, if something happens in the next few hours, and I wouldn't be surprised if it does, um, you know, we're just going to have to live with that. And I will have to update you again going forward. But Memphis played um, over the weekend, they crushed Alcorn State. James Wiseman, that was the first game that he did, in fact, sit out. He did not play in that game. And I think what happens next is very simple. I think the NCAA and Memphis come to a reasonable solution on this. I don't think this is the situation where the NCAA decides, screw it, and they throw the book at, at Memphis. Because one, I don't think Memphis would have removed this lawsuit if they didn't know that behind the scenes something reasonable was going to happen, right? Like, like if Memphis really thought, okay, like James Wiseman, the NCAA is never going to allow this kid to play for us again. Like, I don't think that, that Memphis pulls the lawsuit. I don't think that James Wiseman, if he knows he'll never be able to play again, pulls the lawsuit. Our buddy Gary Parrish, who's been on this show, kind of reported earlier in the week that basically, for lack of a better term, basically Memphis is kind of working with the NCAA for a reasonable solution on this. I don't know when it'll come but I don't think it will be the massive uh, throw the book at Memphis, make an example out of Memphis, because, listen, two things. One, like I said, I don't think Memphis would pull him if that was the case. But then two, I'd also add, I don't think it's good for the NCAA. Listen, the kid withdrew his lawsuit. He's trying to work with you. He's a good kid. He was in good academic standing. He's, he doesn't want to embarrass you. And so I really do hope that the NCAA decides we are not going to embarrass this kid. One, because I want to watch the kid play basketball. But two, he is trying to work with them. He's trying to work with Memphis. And I do think in the end, we do get some kind of result that probably results in some type of like nine-ish game suspension, which will probably include the, the, the three games that Memphis already played with him on the court. And so I think he sits out maybe a total of the first nine games of the season. Now, what will end up happening is this, and I will admit something, and I want to apologize about something. I did screw, I did screw something up last week, which was kind of a really big fact in this case, and that, 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 that example is this. As I told you last week, if Memphis played James Wiseman and James Wiseman was ineligible, I said they would have to vacate wins. I said they would show up as losses on their NCAA tournament resume so that Memphis would have losses to South Carolina State and Illinois Chicago to start the season. So I was wrong on that, okay? There, if Memphis played James Wiseman and he is ineligible, they will have to vacate those wins. But where I messed up was very simply this. They will not count as losses on the resume. It will just be as though Memphis didn't play those games. So to be clear... If the NCAA does rule James Wiseman ineligible in the two games that he played, it does not mean that two losses are added to Memphis's schedule. What it actually means is just, it's almost as if the two games weren't played, right? So like if Memphis finishes the regular season 
27 and 5. And you take out those two wins that they got at the start of the year, their NCAA tournament resume will say they were 25 and 5, like not 27 and 7. So I hope that makes sense and I hope I'm clarifying this, but I do expect a resolution soon. I do think they'll probably add three or four more games on top of the the three that he played plus the one that he set out this weekend. I expect it to be about an eight or a nine game situation. And like I said, selfishly, I want to watch this kid play. And selfishly, I hope the NCAA doesn't kind of throw the book at him. One, I don't think they will, but I, I hope they don't because it doesn't do them any good. It doesn't solve any problems. It doesn't they need good PR right now, right? I guess that's the kind of the, the most simple way that I can put this is that the NCAA is under attack from all angles. You have legislators changing laws to, to attack the NCAA. You have players going overseas to play basketball. You have kids leaving with eligibility left, even though they know they're not going to get drafted. You have all sorts of stuff going on. The NCAA does not need a bad PR hit here by making an example out of James Wiseman. I think it'll be about six more games, five more games on top of the three he played plus the one he sat out on Saturday. All right, wrap real quick. Two more quick things. One, first of all, how about my UConn Huskies? UConn beats Florida on Sunday in Gamble Pavilion. Two really quick takeaways. First, I want to give a shout out to UConn. I really do. And listen, I'm not saying this is Jim Calhoun, 1995, Ray Allen's running down the court. UConn's going to get a number one seed, anything like that. But this is a program that's been really bad for really long. They hadn't had back-to-back seasons since the mid-1980s before Jim Calhoun got to UConn. They had, or excuse me, they didn't have a losing season since Jim Calhoun's first year at UConn. They hadn't had a back-to-back losing season forever. They're now coming off three straight losing seasons, the last two under Kevin Ollie, the most recent one under Dan Hurley last year. But this team looks a lot different. And that's not to say that Florida's good or that, you know, um, that UConn's going to go on and win a national championship. But I will say this, and I tweeted this out on Monday morning after I re-watched the game, is that UConn beat Florida with basically the exact same roster that they had to end last year. And if you look at that roster, they had one freshman in the starting lineup. His name is Akuka Cook. He's a big guy, shot blocker. He looked really, really good on Sunday. But the other four guys in that lineup were players that were on the roster last year. UConn was led by Tyler Polly, led by Christian Vitale, led by Altari Gilbert. And so what that says to me about UConn is this, is that Dan Hurley's reputation as a talent developer, as a program builder, is coming into place. Because if you watched that game and you didn't know which team was ranked in the top 25 and which one wasn't, you would have said it was UConn. UConn looked the part. UConn looked more talented. UConn looked more skilled. They looked more better coached, more better coached. They looked better coached. They looked more cohesive. And so it's a credit to Dan Hurley and his staff because I thought they did an incredible job of having this team ready to play. Now, things aren't solved. UConn lost to St. Joe's a few days ago. So it's not as though things are solved. UConn's going to turn the corner. They're going to be a three seed in the tournament and go to the Sweet 16. That's not what I'm saying at all. But what I am giving credit to is the coaching staff because I just thought that this team looked prepared. They looked better. And they're basically doing it with the exact same guys that UConn had last year. I would also add this. I give credit to the strength and conditioning program and to the players for working hard because the one thing that Dan Hurley has really emphasized in the three or four years, or or, or, excuse me, the two years since he's been there, is that the guys on the floor don't look like UConn players should look. And that's been a big point of contention for Dan Hurley 
is the guys he inherited were out of shape. The pieces don't really fit. Uh, some of them, <laughs> Dan Hurley hasn't said this, but you can kind of tell by some of the comments, some of the guys just aren't good enough. And so Dan Hurley in the last two recruiting classes really talked about like, okay, we want to look like a UConn team is supposed to look like. And so the reason I bring that up is because I give the players and the strength and conditioning staff credit because if you watch the game, UConn was not only the more skilled, more cohesive, better coach team, but they physically look like they belonged on the floor with Florida. It's a major step in the right direction. I should mention UConn is going to get back maybe their most dynamic guard playmaker, James Booknight. He's a freshman. He's suspended. He did some really stupid stuff that you can Google if you want, but he was suspended to start the season. He will be back, and I think he's going only going to add to this UConn team. I don't know if I'm yet sold that UConn is a tournament team, but it wouldn't surprise me. And in this year with this team, with with so many players still left over from the previous coaching staff, it would be an incredible testament to Dan Hurley. But I cannot talk about this UConn win without talking about how bad Florida looks. And this is something like, I'm not going to sit here and like totally pat myself on the back. I had Florida in the top 10 to start the year, mainly because as we're seeing, um, let's be honest, nobody's really that good in college basketball. But I kept telling you guys, I said, like, look, like, I don't think Florida is quite as good as everybody's saying they are. And the reason why was two very simple reasons. One, I never bought that Kerry Blackshear was like this dynamic program changing player that he was hyped up to be. I get it. He was very productive in the ACC last year at Virginia Tech. But as I said, and as I've tweeted a bunch of times, if Kerry Blackshear had simply decided, you know what, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna stay at Virginia Tech. I'm not gonna, tr- t- I'm not gonna enter the transfer portal. I'm not gonna see where else I can land. I'm just gonna stay at Virginia Tech. I'm just gonna finish my career here. Like nobody, like like nobody would be talking about the guy as a potential All American. But because he decided to enter the transfer portal, because he was recruited by, let's be honest, Kentucky, because he ended up at Florida, because he was seen as the missing piece at Florida and Tennessee, all of a sudden. It completely changed the narrative on Kerry Blackshear. Very productive college player, but come on. Like, this guy was never going to be an All-American. This guy was never going to be the X-factor difference maker on a championship caliber team. Now, maybe at Kentucky because there's so many other good pieces around him, but I never bought that this was going to be the guy that put anybody over the top as a national championship contender, but he was hyped that way, and I think it was exclusively because he was the last major guy to make a college decision He was recruited by Kentucky, he was recruited by Tennessee, he was recruited by Florida. I would also say the Andrew Nemhard hype was like a little bit too much coming into the year, right? This is a guy that averaged eight points and six assists last year, and everybody's talking about him. Another one, all-SEC, all-American, potential SEC player of the year. Like, really? Really? Because like, I don't know. Like, I'd rather take probably a healthy Ashton Hagens over that guy. I'd probably take a healthy Devon Dotson over that guy, for sure I would. I'd for sure take a healthy Javante Smart over this guy. And so I looked it up to make sure that I was right on this. And basically the reason that Andrew Nembhard had so much hype, he played a great game last year at the best possible time. He had 20 points in the SEC tournament against LSU, three three three-pointers. It was a huge game and he got so much hype. But that was the only game in the last nine of last season that Andrew Nembhard was a double-digit score. And so I bring that up because I think that their best player, Kerry Blackshear, I think their second best player, Andrew Nemhard, were completely overhyped. Scotty Lewis, who is awesome. 
I saw him a bunch in his high school career. Uh, very special player, but he's not like an offensive guy. He's like a when he gets to the NBA, he will be a lockdown the other team's best player kind of guy. But he's not going to be a twenty point a game scorer at Florida. And so when your two best players were probably a little bit overrated by the national media, not me, because I tell it like it is, and your third guy isn't really going to be an offensive threat at the college level, it kind of limits what your upside is. And so that's what I think we're seeing with Florida. Now, I'd also say, I don't think they're very well coached right now. And that's not necessarily a criticism of Mike White. I'm not here to like crush Mike White. But like, let's be honest, like the guy had never made an NCAA tournament before he got to Florida. Um, you know, his first year, they really struggle, but they get hot in the NCAA tournament, go to the Elite Eight, and everyone thinks that he's the next Billy Donovan, and it's like, I, I don't know if I see that from him. And I think we saw that on Sunday. Decent team, fine team, but like, let's be honest, like, like they weren't well coached, they, they weren't cohesive, as I said, they didn't look like they know what they were doing out there, nobody is capable of taking over a game, at least not at this point in the season, and so I think when you look at Florida right now, I just see a team that is probably an NCAA. I don't even know if they're a definite NCAA tournament team at this point. They lost to the only two Power 5 teams that they've played all year. Actually, I take that back. UConn's not even a Power 5 team. They will be next year in the Big East, but they lost to Florida State. They lost to UConn. And so, like, yeah, Florida's fine. But, like, SEC title contender? No. Top 15 team? No. NCAA tournament team? Yeah, probably but they need a lot of development from a lot of their guys, and that's really what kind of stood out to me. They don't have a guy that can take over the game, like I said. I thought Blackshear actually played pretty well, even though I just kind of criticized him. But they don't have guys that can take over games. They don't have difference makers. I'm not even sure, outside of Scotty Lewis, who isn't an offensive guy, that they have a first round, that they have an NBA caliber player on this roster. And so you watch the game, Again, not very well coached, can't create their own offense. I don't know what they are at this point, but I'll tell you this. I'm not sold on Florida. I think it's going to be absolutely fascinating to watch everything unfold here over the next couple weeks because I'll tell you this. They go to a, a, one of these Thanksgiving tournaments this week, the Charleston Classic. They're going to have to play Xavier, and they might have to play UConn again. And, I mean, they could come out of that tournament with two more losses. And so it's just something to watch. But I do think that Florida is one of those teams that was completely overvalued coming into the season. I want to give one final shout-out to a team that I think was completely undervalued coming into the season, and that is the Tennessee Vols. I, 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 listen, I thought they'd be a tournament team because Jordan Bowden and because Lamonte Turner were excellent down the stretch for them the last couple years or the last couple games last year in the tournament, everyone was so focused on Grant Williams and Admiral Schofield and Jordan Bone. Like, Lamonte Turner and Jordan Bowden were really, really, really good. Jordan Bowden more so early in the season, Lamonte Turner late. But they were really good. And so those two comes back. But the big thing from Tennessee was, like, do they have a big guy that is going to step up, that's going to replace some of the production of Grant Williams? You're not going to get an SEC Player of the Year caliber performance. But can you get one guy that is that big of a difference maker down low that can at least help. And right now, Tennessee has that. Eves Pons, who was basically a guy that was just like a rim runner, rebounder. You know, he'd rebound and get rid of the ball as quick as he could. It was a hot potato. That guy is averaging uh, over 15 points a game this year, 16 and a half points a game. He's had at least 15 points in every game this season. And I have been so impressed with the way he played, and he is giving Tennessee that presence down low that they need to compete at the highest level in this sport. 
Now listen, is this a national championship caliber team? I don't know. But what I am saying, well, I do know they're, they're probably not. But they went onto a neutral site on Saturday afternoon, and they beat a really, really, really good Washington team. Unfortunately, I didn't get to see it because it wasn't on TV. But I'll just say that I think Tennessee, if they can get that out of Eve Ponce to go with Jordan Bowden, to go with Lamonte Turner, they are a team that can make not just an NCAA tournament, but we're talking about a potential SEC championship contender. We're talking about a team that could be a potential 4-5-6 seed. I think you have to feel really good if you're a Tennessee fan right now. Florida, we just mentioned, struggling. LSU lost their biggest game of the season so far. Alabama, who I thought was going to be good, has lost twice. Kentucky's a little banged up. I think they'll be fine in the big picture. But I think you got to feel good if you're a Tennessee fan right now and where you are, especially relative to a lot of other teams. All right. That is all for today's Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Unbelievable show. I wish that we could have gotten this out a little bit earlier, but I promise I am back on a normal schedule this week. I will record late Sunday for Monday morning, late Wednesday for Thursday morning, and there will be tons to recap. Kentucky takes the court for the first time following that loss to Evansville on Monday night. Hopefully nothing crazy happens. Um, And yeah, and then there's a lot of other good college hoops throughout the week. So that is all. That is all for today's show. I appreciate you guys listening. Reminder, please, 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 please. Make sure you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Do it on iTunes, Podcast Addict. If you have an Android, use Podcast Addict, Podbean, TuneIn Radio, Spotify. Anywhere you listen to podcasts, you can listen to this show. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Give us a quick five stars. Follow on Instagram. I just posted my top 25 for this week. I'll be doing it every single Monday for the rest of the season. Also, make sure if you have questions, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. Finally, I don't know if I mentioned this off the top. Trying to get an event together in Vegas around the CBS Sports Classic. That's UCLA, North Carolina, Kentucky, Ohio State. If you're going to be in Vegas, if you would want to do something probably the Friday before the game, let me know. Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. Or you can hit me on Twitter at Aaron underscore Torres or in my IG DMs. Basically, wherever you can get a hold of me, I will eventually find it. So that is all. I want to thank you guys for listening. Great show today. Covered a lot of ground. I appreciate your support. Maybe we'll try to get Nick Coffee back later this week. We'll see what the deal is. But that is all for the show. Shout out to my boy Torrent Craig, the Australian legend. And we will be back later this week. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.